Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It is with trepidation that I preach today. It's called, uh, it's called Heresy Sunday by many priests because it's very easy when you start talking about the Trinity uh, to verge off into heresy in some form or fashion. In fact, I was talking with a priest friend of mine yesterday who's down in Florida. It was yesterday afternoon, and he said, uh, yeah, I'm just sitting down to write the sermon because I had a couple funerals this week and I did a wedding yesterday. And so this is the first time I've been able to sit down and think. And I think, oh, good luck. <laughs> Don't worry, I wrote this mostly before yesterday. But it is true that for too many Christians today, the, the Trinity is a kind of abstract concept that has very little to no bearing on their day-to-day life. In fact, most American Christians don't seem to have a good understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity at all. There's a group called Ligonier Ministries, and they put out a survey every few years called the State of Theology, where they survey lay people and ask them basic theological questions. In 2022, only 54% of American Christians could strongly agree with the statement that there is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Further, a whopping 40% agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. That's the heresy of Arianism. 31% agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That's Unitarianism. Meanwhile, 59% of Christians surveyed strongly agreed that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being like we live in Star Wars. So for many people, the Trinity at best has little to no impact on how they think, or worse, they have a warped view of the Trinity that contradicts scriptures and what the church teaches. Now, this is a problem not because at the end of your life you're going to be asked a 10-question doctrine test at the gates of heaven, and if you answer seven or more, you get in. Rather, this is a problem because how we think and how we pray, that is what we believe and how we worship in the liturgy, are not only related, but they're the same thing. They're interrelated phenomena. How we worship is what we believe. The Trinity is divinely revealed language that the church has given us so that we can make sense of our human encounter with the divine. This beautiful picture of three and one and one and three encapsulates two poles of religious experience, transcendence and imminence. Transcendence and imminence. When we talk about the transcendence of God, we're talking about God as virtually unreachable because he dwells in light and accessible as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. Yet many of us also have experiences that tell us that God is imminent, that he's close to us. In fact, that he's closer to us than we are to our own selves. Without the doctrine of the Trinity, we often as humans end up gravitating towards one of those poles at the expense of the others. If you do a survey of world religions, you can chart them roughly as corresponding to one of those two poles. So if we emphasize only the imminent aspect of God, which in Christian thought is usually uh, the emphasis of the person of the Holy Ghost, then we tend to come up with a religion that's almost entirely ethical. It's like a kind of Confucianism. But if we only have God as transcendent, if we only have him as inaccessible, typically this pole is personified by God the Father, then we began to gravitate towards a kind of extreme asceticism 
where many of the religions that embody this, this mentality will, will tell you that you should, you should reject God's good creation in pursuit of exclusively spiritual realities. But the Christian trinity kind of brings these two seemingly opposing poles together, and they come together in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, the Word of God, who was at the beginning, who was with God, through whom all things were made, but also is God with us, Emmanuel. And so Jesus is a constant reminder that, that there's this bridge between imminence and transcendence that we can have communion with God. And it's on this note that I want to spend some time in our reading from Isaiah 6 this morning. The prophet Isaiah receives this vision from God and we're told, the very first thing we're told about it is that it's, it happens in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was a king of Israel. He actually was, a, was an exception more than a rule. He was a righteous king for the most of his life until he developed the vice of pride later on. According to 2 Chronicles 26, he actually offered incense to God. And the problem with this is that the offering of incense was a priestly function, not a kingly function. So Uzziah was usurping the role of priest. And so uh, God judges him. He punishes him. And the Hebrew tradition is that God punished Uzziah by divine silence. That for the rest of Uzziah's life, there were no more prophetic messages. There were no more prophetic visions. But as soon as Uzziah dies, the beginning of our reading this morning, the prophet Isaiah is divinely ordained to restart communication between God and the people. And this commissioning occurs, not in some fancy church somewhere, but in the throne room of God, where Isaiah actually sees God sitting on the throne. And he witnesses this spectacular scene of the angels and the saints around the throne worshiping. And there are these two seraphim that are above the throne, constantly crying one to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Does that sound familiar to you? As Anglicans, this is a common refrain for us. At morning prayer, we pray this in the Te Deum Canticle, which is sung right after the first reading at the daily office. And of course, we will say it here in a few moments. It's said at the preface of the Mass at every Holy Communion. It's such an important hymn that it's taught not only to Isaiah, but there is a very similar refrain in the vision of St. John the Divine, when he sees the four beasts around the throne singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now that thrice repeated refrain of holy is really important because it's a Trinitarian statement. Holy is the Father, the fountain of all being. Holy is Jesus Christ, his Son, who is of one substance with the Father. Holy is the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so when we get to that part of morning prayer every morning, or when we get to that part of Holy Communion, our adoration is being explicitly directed towards the Holy Trinity. Now you might notice, those of you maybe especially who have been Anglican for a long time, might notice that there's a slight difference between what Isaiah hears and what we say at Holy Communion. What does Isaiah hear? The whole earth is full of his glory. But what is it that we say? During the preface, heaven and earth are full of his glory. Why the discrepancy? 19th century Anglican priest John Keeble explains that this is because when Isaiah was taken up to heaven, he was given foresight to see the incarnation and the suffering of Jesus here on earth. 
In fact, many of the church fathers called Isaiah the fifth gospel. We as the post-Easter church have a slightly different vantage point. We get to see the events of the passion and the, of, and the incarnation, but we also have the ascension. We have the more complete picture. And so we cry out in praise, not only that the whole earth is full of his glory, but that heaven and earth are full of his glory. Now, this hymn is one we sing week after week, and it's a gem. I don't know that we fully appreciate how valuable it is. Our weekly recitation of it means that we all probably have it memorized. If I saw you on the street and I started it, I bet you could finish it. But our frequent repetition may also mean that we we fail to fully appreciate just how beautiful it is. I mean, this is the hymn of heaven. The great saints in the scriptures and the great saints in the history of the church are singing this hymn constantly, all the time. Our loved ones who have died and gone before us, who are in heaven, are singing this constantly, all the time. And not only is it recorded for us in scripture, we can go read it. We can even say it to ourselves, but it comes alive for us weekly as we are lifted up into heaven for our divine worship. This constant refrain is an invitation. It gives us a window into eternity. It shows us our destiny. This hymn is the only way to happiness, the only way to happiness, because it's what we were made for. We were made to sing this hymn. And so faced with that invitation, with that reality, how do we respond? Hopefully we don't turn away from it. Jesus is standing there beckoning us, come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden. We should heed the voice of our good shepherd and listen to this heavenly music with every fiber of our being, shutting out the noise of a world that's desperately trying to weigh us down with its heavy burdens. So really this part of the liturgy in which we sing the the preface is a guide to our ascent into heaven. Because what do we do right before we sing that? Right before the preface, what goes on? Do you remember? We make our confession. We humble ourselves. We confess our sins. We receive absolution. It's that rhythm of the Christian life. And only then, only when we're in a state of grace, can we lift up our hearts to the Lord, away from those things that pull us down, And it's only then in the liturgy that we offer him the celestial hymn, holy, holy, holy. And it's not by accident that this is the word God chooses, holy. Because it's one of the clearest distillations of who he is. And it's important. I think it's an encouragement and a warning for us. I mean, his holiness encourages us to prepare ourselves. And it warns us not to come near while we're unclean. The angels and saints in heaven offer their worship flawlessly. They've gone through it all. They've reached the state of perfection. They're in a state of glorification. But those of us who are here on earth, we're laden down. We need his help, or at least most of us do. If you don't, talk to me. I'd like to get some tips. And so, given that this is our reality, given that this is our condition, we have to take very seriously what it is that God told Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. You remember this. Moses asks to see God. And what does God tell him? No man shall see the Lord and live. And so he puts Moses in the crevice of a rock and lets him see the backside of God is the the Hebrew. So if it is that you find yourself in a state of sin right now, you can adore the Eucharist. You can ask our Lord to give you true repentance. 
You can come confess your sins, but don't receive communion while you're still in such a state, remembering that St. Paul warns us very strongly against unworthy reception in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And it's a warning that will be elaborated here on a few moments because the first this Trinity Sunday, we always read the exhortation. When we sing this preface before communion, we're called to hope. We're called to look forward. We're called to remember. We're called to look to the past. And we're called to make a resolution right now in the present. We hope by looking forward to the day when we too, Lord willing, will take our place in the Empyrean choir alongside angels and saints in the great throne room at the divine altar where we will perpetually adore him. It's what we were made for. We'll we'll be seen and we will see, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. So we look forward, but we also look backwards. We look to the moment of our baptism in which we were born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, we were born of water and the spirit, right? Because our baptisms were done in that precious name, in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Ghost, we were sealed. So we're called to remember that that's who we are. And that informs the present. We're called to make a resolution in light of this, knowing that that heavenly picture we read in Isaiah and Revelation is the model for the church. It's easy to get bogged down in the mundanity of church life. We do coffee hour and we do uh, programs and we do all sorts of events, but church is heaven on earth. Or maybe we should say it's earth transfigured into heaven. And so the constancy of heavenly worship should be an impetus for us who are here on earth to resolve to never give up to the vice of sloth or indifference or inattentiveness. We should keep pushing. Just like that heavenly worship is constant, we are being made constant. Another 19th century Anglican priest, John Henry Newman, once said, learn to do thy part and leave the rest to heaven. Learn to do thy part and leave the rest to heaven. In fact, Andrea bought me a mug, I think for Christmas a few years ago, that has that on it. In the grand symphony of the church's self-offering to God, there are no small parts. This beautiful picture of the trinity and unity of unity and diversity paints a picture of the ideal towards which the church strives. Each of us here today have different backgrounds. We have different struggles and we have different gifts. And whatever part it is that you are called to play, it's indispensable. No one can play your part. Together as the church with our various giftings, with our different vantage points, we can more fully comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And so I think it it helps sometimes to step back for a moment out of the mundane, to open our eyes and see that today we worship not just here right now with the people at the 11 o'clock service at St. Paul's Anglican Church in Crownsville, Maryland, not even with all the people who have worshipped here already with the 8 o'clock and the 9.30 and the 11 o'clock services. We're not even worshipping with all Christians here in Anne Arundel County and Annapolis. We're not even worshipping with all Christians in the state of Maryland. We're not even worshipping with all Christians in the United States. We're not even worshipping with all Christians around the world. We are worshipping with all Christians who have ever been and whoever will be who worship in heaven as well. And I think when we have that kind of perspective, the grand view of the church, the cosmic view of the church, it helps us play our parts a little bit better. 
because we're joining not just among one another, but among all the saints and the whole assembly of angels. And it's a reminder for us, don't get so preoccupied with the things here. Don't get so preoccupied with the 24-hour news cycle. Don't get so preoccupied with entertainment. Don't get so preoccupied with wealth. Don't get so preoccupied with other lesser pursuits, but rather lift up your hearts. Look into the very reality, the very heart of reality, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I have found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.